One of the world's leading epidemiologists, Rick Groba has been at the center of multiple groundbreaking projects of the Innovative Medicines Initiative that have focused on harnessing health data in new and unique ways. IMIs Get Real, Big Data for Better Outcomes, and Big Data at Heart have all focused on improving research, but now Rick Groba is leading the newly launched trials at home that will move clinical trials from the hospital to the home, fundamentally changing the way clinical research is conducted in Europe. Rick is the professor of clinical epidemiology at Utrecht University and founder of the Julius Center for Health Sciences, currently employing roughly 500 staff. In 2017, he was knighted by the Dutch King. Hello, Rick. How are you? Hello, Dwayne. I'm fine. How about you? I'm very well. So uh, you have roughly 500 staff, but as we were just joking, not today. Not today. Well, they're there somewhere, but uh, not in the office. (laughs) We're obviously in the throes of the quarantine in Europe, but thank you for your hospitality. It's great to see you. You were just knighted. What was that like? It came as a complete surprise. <laughs> and, and, well, it was really an, an honor and, and uh, not only a compliment to me, but also to, uh, to the, the people that I've been working with and, and done what I've done. It, it was also a bit, you know, unnerving in a way, because uh, typically this is something that happens at the end of your career. <laughs> you think it's a side? Or? I didn't feel like that at the time, but uh, nonetheless, I was looking for a horse. Eventually, couldn't find a parking space, so. Do you have a? Was there a sword? I mean, how does it? How does no, it no, it's Dutch, so it's a bit sober. We also not not bearing the title sir, so you know, I'm I'm just the same as I was before. Well, that's cool though. Congratulations. Before you came here to Utrecht, you were in Rotterdam and were one of the founders of the Rotterdam study. I think this is really interesting because it's yeah. one of these ongoing epi studies. Can you yeah. just tell folks what the Rotterdam study is and why it's yeah, so important? Yeah, the the, the the Rotterdam study is um, is in in essence a plain epidemiologic cohort study uh, in several thousands of citizens of Rotterdam. There's probably two unique features to it. One is that um, it's focusing on the elderly, quote-unquote elderly, you know, 55 and over uh, at the time of the start. Uh, They've now been following for over 25 years. And and the second characteristic is that it it brings uh, tools and, and diagnostics that usually are uh, restricted to the hospital setting to the population. So and at that time, we built a, a center there where we moved in you know, all sorts of technologies that, that help us to much better understand processes of aging, uh, including CT scanning and so on and so forth. So in, in that sense, it's, it's like a clinical study carried out in the population. And what have been some of the key findings that have come out? Well, the focus has been on, on, on a number of uh, chronic diseases, notably uh, cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, and Alzheimer's disease, and also the connection between the two. So a lot has been learned about the etiology and, and, and prognosis of, uh, of dementia, for example, its different manifestations, uh, the pathophysiology behind that, the genetics behind that. In cardiovascular disease, we've learned a lot about progress uh, and determinants of that progress um, and being able to show new phenotypes uh, also genetically determined. So if we look at this in the context of COVID-19, the Chinese coronavirus, Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it, obviously this is a disease that's mostly attacking the aged as far as the mortality rates. What are you seeing from your work right now? What are the risk factors that you see currently from the Dutch population? Well, not too different from what we've seen elsewhere in the world. Um, in fact, there's, there's still a lot we don't, we don't know. Sure. Uh, it looks like the uh, case fatality rate is higher than the seasonal flu. On the other hand, we don't know the denominators really. Right. Um, so there's probably many more people that have been infected. No signs, no symptoms, just uh, immune response um, go on. 
uh, and, and we don't know that number really. So I'm not sure about the true case fatality rate at this point in time, but uh, indeed it affects the elderly and, and the vulnerable. Uh, we also just sent out a brief by the World Heart Federation uh, summarizing particular features of high-risk populations, such as, for example, people with heart failure and other chronic conditions. So there's still a lot not known, but this pattern is, is quite clear. And I have no doubt it, that eventually um, uh, 50% or, or more of the population will be infected. So we're all just going to wait until we have some sort yeah. of herd immunity. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's really a matter of managing resources right now. There's been several different strategies. If you look at the Danes and the Brits, they've sort of tried to move to herd immunity quicker. Yeah. Sort of said, okay, let's try and isolate grandma and grandpa and then let people run around and have a good time and not yeah. kill the economy. Yeah. But what you've seen in Spain and Italy, you know, there's been real lockdown. Well, what do you think is the right, is there a right way or <laughs> what do you reckon? Time time will tell. Sure. Time will tell. And, and uh, it's, it's a, a tight balance between, on the one hand, indeed creating herd immunity which in itself is a powerful way of, of uh, keeping infection out. We've seen that for many other defect- infectious diseases. But on the other hand, if, if you let the, the virus run, then there is this risk of running out of, of resources, uh, in particular uh, IC beds and, and ventilators. And so that, that, is, that is what needs to be sort of tweaked in, in different countries, have different uh, strategies for that. Um, what we see happening in Spain is probably a reflection of a, a, a relatively relaxed attitude early on. Uh, so it's now going fast. Um, I, th- I think that right now in the Netherlands, the way it looks, it, it is uh, manageable. And it looks like the, the sort of flattening of the curve is achieved, but you know, it can change tomorrow or the week thereafter. There have been a lot of discussions around repurposing several drugs, particularly for malaria, that seem effective yeah. from an epi standpoint, from your perspective, someone who has the data and works with the data from a public health standpoint. How effective do you think this can be and how quickly could we scale some of these up? These are certainly scalable options because these drugs are available in, in relatively large quantities for, for low cost. So that, that in itself should not create a, a major problem, but, but efficacy and safety is another thing. And, you know, it's, it's like what we've seen in, in other epidemics uh, of, of difficult nature, like Ebola. At, at some point, anything goes, but, but we still need to keep in mind that, that we need solid evidence before exposing large uh, population numbers to uncertain therapies with uncertain risks. So th- there's now a couple of trials on the way, quickly uh, done. That should help uh, in, in, in for several of these uh, therapies. So we'll sh- see what comes out of that. And what about uh, vaccine? What do you reckon? How long is that going to be? A year. Yeah. So that is uh, not not something that uh, that will help us a lot uh, in the in the next couple of months. So in the meantime, just wash your hands and. Yeah, do everything to try to prevent spreading the virus to the ones that cannot handle it. One of the things that's been very interesting is the move to more personalized. I mean, obviously, we're talking big disease now, <laughs> coronavirus, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. If you look at how science and genetic indications are going, we're getting more and more targeted. We're getting more and more personal. Do you see that it's inevitable that we're just going to go this way and have more and more targeted therapies? Just is this the way the science is leading? Yeah, it, it, at least theoretically, because we are now able to much better profile patients for their particular features, genetic or otherwise. So the sort of simple phenotypes of chronic disease are, are now much more differentiated and, and more granular. And in, in itself, that would open 
up ways to to target uh, more specific uh, mechanisms, for example. And that is extremely helpful, in particular in those settings where the sort of therapies we have fail to benefit many while delivering risks to many. Right. Um, so when the risk-benefit ratio is not quite clear, then, then we need to be much more targeted. So, for example, in oncology, that is now moving very, very quickly. Some other diseases, I'm, I'm not quite that sure. Take, for example, hypertension. Yes, there is a, a myriad of, uh, of mechanisms behind that. Specifically early on, the early stages of hypertension have different pathophysiologies between different people. But at a certain stage, you know, the sort of uh, general phenotype is the same. And the treatment is sort of the same across the board. These drugs work in many. So where personalized medicine is, uh, is necessary, we should aim for it. Where it's redundant or not really cost-effective, we might as well stick with the sort of uh, general strategies that we have. And if you look at some of the cardiovascular drugs that were targeted and were you know, genetic-based, particularly some of the PCSK9 therapies that yeah. came out, highly effective, quite expensive. And the fact is you've got all of these lipid-lowering drugs now that are essentially free. They're cheap. They're a penny a day. And at a certain point, from a public health standpoint, you have to go, well, well this is free. So how much is this extra 10 or 15% that's going to cost me twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 or euros? How much more am I willing to pay over a dollar a day? Yeah. You know, the PCSK9 inhibitors, they show a number of things. And on the one hand, it's, it's a great example of how genetics have, have helped us to understand mechanisms that we then can target. And these drugs work um, also in people that don't have any sure. genetic abnormality related to PCSK9. So in that sense, it's again a, a drug that works in almost everybody. Uh, and the question indeed is one, again, of, of cost and benefit here. What you see happening is that, that when these drugs came out first and the first trials were there, there was uh, big applause and, and uh, we, can, we can really reduce the epidemic of heart disease uh, further. A couple of years down the road now, it looks like in many countries uh, there's only f- few people that are using it. Right. And typically for the right reasons. So, for example, familial hypercholesterolemia is, a, is a, a disorder in which we need to, to use whatever comes along to reduce the risk because it's so high. But you can question whether the sort of average patient um, would benefit to the extent that, that it would merit the costs. And, uh, and, and indeed, uh, we're quite restrictive currently for those drugs. Yes. And again, Lipitor is free. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially free, right? Now. Yeah, statins are, are, are just a miracle drug, and, yeah. and they're, they're almost without costs now. So that, that has pushed the, the, the secondary prevention arena much further. Obviously, one of the big challenges is having enough data and rich enough data to be able to find the populations, to be able to identify clinical trial targets. And this sort of gets us into what's been your sweet spot, what's mm-hmm. been your, the heart of your work around the Innovative Medicines Initiative. And I'd like to first start off with the project Get Real. Yeah. What were some of the key findings that came out of Get Real? What were some of the objectives? Well, it, it really helped us uh, and, and, and many involved sharpening our views about what real-world evidence now really means. It is a, a term that is used in many different ways. It's a little uh, bit of a buzzword. It's a buzzword, and also sort of sources of knowledge are, are very diverse. There's one extreme that thinks that if we have enough data, 
we will generate enough knowledge. Um, and and I think that's not true. And it's one of the things that that we have emphasized in the work that was was done in, in Get Real, that if you want to learn about the real-world effects of, of drugs in particular, that it, it doesn't suffice to have a big registry and see what happens. Um, it also showed that good old randomization still is the cornerstone of, of generating knowledge on the, on the benefits of drug in particular. And there is uh, intermediate territory. So what Get Real has helped to shape is the, the next generation of trials that move away uh, from the very strict laboratory circumstances that, that pivotal trials typically have been conducted uh, in, and excluding many patients, excluding comorbidities, co-medications, things that in the real world are there. And, and in order to learn about what drugs do in those settings, you need much more unselected populations, um, and different outcomes, different comparators. And all of that is, is uh, in, in the Get Real uh, framework, uh, much more uh, specified and, and discussed and helps to translate it to practice. So if we're looking at some of these tools, essentially Get Real sounds like a yeah. digital toolbox. Yeah. One of the things that we hear from a lot of the payers, particularly the HTAs and the payers in Europe, is we're getting efficacy data out of EMA. Okay, we know it works, but what's the value? Yeah. And so it's the incremental cost benefit, the effectiveness, as it were, that we need to have more rich data. Do you see Get Real and some of these other platforms being able to fulfill that need? Get Real's thinking in the discussions within the various stakeholder groups that are involved in Get Real have helped to delineate that and indeed have emphasized the, the importance of looking at what the routine clinical care demands when you design your research and, and try to stay closer to where the eventual application takes place. So you could call it effectiveness. It's indeed taking into account the heterogeneity of a population and uh, even differences across countries. You know, if, it, if a trial shows benefit compared to a drug that's not used in a certain country, then it's very hard for that country to determine what the benefit would be in their setting. Um, so, so that requires upfront thinking and, uh, and, and, and hopefully that upfront thinking helps in those circumstances where currently there's a gap between availability of the drug, you know, cleared by regulatory authorities and the access that patients have to those drugs. So there's a gap that needs to be uh, taken away. Is the current system fit for purpose in that respect or do we need to look at a new way to sort of integrate that data faster? We need to look at ways of integrating that data faster. We need to remove the barrier that there is uh, in, in terms of thinking and standards uh, of requirements for regulatory approval versus uh, what HDA bodies and, and payers really would like to see. And and I think that that thinking is shifting, and we see examples now coming up of uh, studies where that has been taken into account. Some of the countries in Europe have been against that, no names. Hmm. <laughs> but I think the Dutch have certainly been more forward-looking, the Brits certainly have as well, the Belgians, yeah. uh, other countries not. No. <laughs> How do we carry those along? Is it going to be a coalition of the willing that's sort of going to say, we're going to do this regardless, and then you'll just have to catch up? Do you think that's the way it's going to work? That's the way it, it, it currently works. And, uh, yeah, there's differences in many many aspects across Europe in rigidity of systems and thinking, sometimes also sort of culturally determined. But what GetReal hopes to be doing and continues to be doing is keep that discussion alive and try to, at relevant points, summarize where the thinking is. Hopefully that helps. The project is going to become an ongoing concern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
great, wonderful brand, wonderful project. What's the current status? Where are you guys at? And where do you see yourselves in a couple of years? We are in the last phase of the IMI-sponsored period of, uh, of Get It Real. So we are gearing up now for sustainability to create a platform that would uh, continue for years to come as an environment, a system where uh, discussion and, and experiments on real-world evidence generation will take place. There's a number of ways in which we, we try to achieve that. Um, having a think tank of, of many involved that, uh, that, that would come up with relevant questions where society and, and the professional community asks for. Uh, which then can be delegated to certain groups to work out and come up with recommendations. There's ways of disseminating knowledge that we are exploring, like, for example, there's a conference coming up later this year at the uh, end of the IMI period and the start of the new period where we will summarize what GetWheel has delivered and and how we want to proceed and also uh, have discussions on on what relevant avenues would be, Uh, but also we're thinking about a journal to disseminate knowledge uh, specifically in this area. There's a real need for that because there's a real-world evidence journal doesn't currently exist. We've talked about this. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's opportunities there and space and also a need for that. Get Real, finishing up. Trials at home. Now, this is yeah. a, sort of the front end of the value chain, as it were. Yeah. How is that going? Tell us a bit about trials at home. It's logic also in perspective of what Gadriel has been doing, you know, asking for studies that are more inclusive, for example, that would allow heterogeneity. And uh, trials at home is starting from the view that, that there's so much um, technology currently available uh, that would allow us to, to modify the way traditional trials have been conducted, which is patients coming to a hospital, being selected by their physician, informed consent, enrolling, repeat, coming to the hospital for measurements and so on and so forth. And given what we're dealing with today with the coronavirus. Well, this, this is a, 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 a <laughs> case in point. Exactly. You know, so so how, how we are currently struggling with some of our conventional studies across the world because, you know, we cannot enroll patients, patients cannot get to the hospital, there's no priority. So it, it shows, for different reasons, a, a need for change, and, and we have all the technology available. So that is what, what Trials at Home aims for, that, that we bring trials to patients rather than, pa- than patients to trials. And it does have uh, additional um, major implications. Uh, so, for example, for so-called rare diseases. Sure. You know, there's rare diseases. They are typically defined by geographic area. So we have just a few cases in a particular country, for example. But worldwide, uh, rare diseases are not that rare. So if we have, have means of getting to those patients um, uh, without the, the cost that that would currently entail, uh, that would open up uh, opportunities to also study diseases that are currently a bit neglected. 80% of rare diseases, according to the uh, data that was just published by Eurotis, are for one in one million. Yeah. So there's maximum population of 500 patients in Europe yeah. trying to get all those together in one place. It's one impossible. Th- it would be impossible. It's impossible. So, so, uh, so, so having these tools could... Yeah, this, this really uh, creates an, a new ways of getting also access to those patients and the therapies they need. It's one of the largest projects that IMI has ever funded as far yeah. as resources. Yeah. How are you managing that? You're one of the co-leads. Is it it's yeah. must be a challenge getting, it's a three-ring circus, Rick. How does it work? <laughs> yeah, how, how, how does it work? Well, <laughs> luckily, we did have some experience in smaller projects. So the, the sort of organizational structures that worked in the past and, and were scalable are, are, are used now. You know, at the end of the day, 
as in any project, small or large, the quality is, is driven by the people that you have assembled. And, and we have just a great team. On, on the industry side, very committed companies and staff. On the academic and SME side also, people are really engaged. And so, for example, it takes hardly any, any difficulty in keeping pace and having people get together, be it virtual or face-to-face, and working on deliverables. It's a tight scheme. We have five years. In that five-year period, uh, we, we need to scan what is available, make sense of, of all technologies, also in view of, of whether they are acceptable or not, and, and if not acceptable, whether that says something about regulations or about the technology. Then we're going to try that out. So we're going to run a, uh, an experiment and trial in which we look into these technologies, the way they work, also whether they are acceptable to patients, because it's not only good news if you as a patient will not need to go to your doctor for the study. It also means that you will have less attention, less personal contact. So that, that there's pros and cons to that, and we, and we need to balance that, uh, and all in a five-year period. So, so uh, you know, discipline and hard work is needed. But what I see happening now in trials at home is just that, you know, discipline and hard work and results coming out. It's ambitious. When do you think you can go live with a trial? What's the time horizon? About a year from now. Wow. Yeah. That's ambitious. Yeah. yeah. It is. It is. And we're not there yet. Uh, but preparations are according to plan. And, and we need to do that because otherwise uh, we'll, we won't have the results in the five-year period that we've uh, aimed for. Do you know which clinical indication you're shooting for? Is that still under discussion? It's still under discussion. It's still under discussion. It should be an indication that allows us to look into as many aspects of the trial as possible. So that means, you know, consenting, but also uh, drug distribution issues, um, measurements, be it um, at home or using wearables, data collection, relevant outcomes. You know, it would be impossible to do a a clinical outcome study for, for many, many indications because it takes too long. So you need to have something intermediary that you can look at. The, the drug needs to be available, um, marketed, and so on and so forth. So we're right in the middle of that discussion. I hope that we have clarity on, on how to move forward uh, as to the therapeutic domain in about two months from now. Sounds fantastic. One of the challenges in Europe has been access to data, as you know, if you compare it to the United States or certainly China. Of course, China's got its own raft of problems right now on mm-hmm. the other side. But but certainly getting access to data has been a problem in Europe. Although, given the fact that these are public health systems, Europe theoretically should have the most robust longitudinal data set possible. Why has it been so difficult to get data in Europe? Is it political? Is it social? Is it Cultural. It's it's all of that. Europe is a is a not even a federation. It's a group of uh, of very different states, very different histories, cultures, regulations. So, indeed, well, I I'm not sure whether it is so hard in in Europe to get data, but it is hard to get data across countries, sure. for example. So, uh, pan-European efforts are, are much more difficult than doing something, for example, in the Netherlands. Um, and indeed, big differences between countries. So, for example, in Sweden, it's possible to link whatever you want to link uh, based on a unique identifier. In Holland, we have a unique identifier, but cannot be used for research. <laughs> um, so, those are difficulties we have to, to work with. And there's good examples of, of how that works. For example, you mentioned Big Data at Heart. You know, it, it's, it's comprising in its data about 20 million subjects or patients across Europe. And we have been employing new technologies to get access for, to this data. For example, 
using more federated approaches. You know, there was a time that we were sort of dreaming about data lakes, big repositories where everything would be collected. That is an echo from the past. Why do you think that's not feasible? For what we just said, you know. And you mentioned China. China is is indeed, for themselves, they have access to data. But to get data out of China is impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. Uh, and the same holds true for many countries in Europe, uh, where it's very hard to get data out, and there's also also privacy regulations. So, in order to cope with that, we rather than bringing the data to the to the analyses, we bring the analyses to the data. So we run scripts uh, in different uh, in different countries using different data sets. Then the, the results get out without any identifying information, and then it becomes much more feasible. So a federated approach, similar. Yeah. yeah. Do you see that changing in the future? Do you think there's going to be more opening of access, or is, does GDPR sort of put paid to that? I think the the um, implications of GDPR have been overstated. Um, it's there's a lot of attention suddenly again for privacy regulations. So if you look, you know, at face value to GDPR, it's not that different from what we had before that. So that should not create big issues for the future. I think that technology will help us again to overcome barriers. You know, if, if we really can install high-quality, uh, safe, privacy-by-design uh, solutions, for example, in hospitals um, and have a, a firewall between um, individual patient data and, and uh, the results of analyses on this, that data, it will open up great opportunities, uh, not only for sort of observational research, but I'm also very much convinced that in the future we will be much more able to, for example, run clinical trials right into uh, electronic medical records uh, of patients. One of the benefits of a trials at home or even a distributed healthcare system is, is cost and efficiency, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I think that underlying a lot of these decisions is this need to try and figure out a new way to do healthcare cheaper and better. Yeah. If we look at Europe's demographics right now, essentially we have four workers for every pensioner today. Mm. By 2055, we will have two workers for every pensioner. How do we actually fix the funding mechanisms around healthcare and how do we actually fix the system? How can we use these tools, for example, trials at home and get real? How can we leverage these to fix this demographic problem we've got? If, if I knew the answer, then <laughs> <laughs> I would, would not be sitting here. But obviously, the way we run our system currently is, is not sustainable. You know, it's much too resource intense and staff intense. That is something that if, if we want to see why that is impossible, it's not, not necessarily needed to look in, into the future of Europe, but, you know, you can look at two-thirds of the globe. Sure. Where, you know, there's countries uh, like, like Tanzania, I think there's five cardiologists uh, for the whole country, <laughs> uh, and, and maybe one psychiatrist. So, but if you you're know, trying to retire and you're a cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we need to think out of the box and, and use, again, technology. I think that, um, that technology is going to, to help us a lot. Uh, I'm currently working on yet another project where we look into ways of, of using uh, artificial intelligence-driven solutions in hospitals to replace manpower. So things like that are just around the corner and, and can be used. But apart from that, there's more general issues. For example, a need to spend much more on prevention and, and make people healthier for a longer period, um, empower people to cope better with their own circumstances uh, so that they don't have to rely only on the healthcare systems is, is another way, totally different way uh, to approach the problems. If you could make one change now, Rick, 
over the next two years to improve health care, if you had the ability here in the Netherlands, if you were given carte blanche by the current administration, what would you want to do? What change would you make? Ooh, that, that is one change. That, that's not an easy one. For a country where currently, you know, the healthcare system in the Netherlands is in a pretty good shape. So there's always room for improvements, but, but in, in essence, it's quite a, a good system. I think that a major change would be to connect care better with prevention. You know, like in this country and many other countries, these are different planets, also in terms of, uh, of costs and benefits. For prevention, costs are being made by society or the government, and the benefits will end up in you know, health insurance pockets. A better connection between the two, therefore being able to prioritize on things that may not give immediate relief for a patient, but uh, a healthier society is, is certainly something I would like to uh, promote. That's great, Rick. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you.